0: Uh, I've preached this well part of this I had 20 minutes uh, and I know sometimes you wish I'd take 20 minutes but I didn't do a good job in 20 so I'm hoping however long I take this morning I do a better job on this it is desperately worth uh, our paying attention to because it involves thinking now we don't do much of that these days that is quite evident if you turn on the news it seems as though nobody is using their brains anymore especially if they are in leadership And we're certainly trained not to think, I forgot who I was talking to just the other day, how everything comes at us in just like one-minute segments on social media, if that long. We get pictures and we get videos that last a minute or less, and if they go longer than that, I mean, we're done and we're scrolling because it's taken entirely too long to make your point. Uh, I see myself growing more and more impatient with people who can't say what they need to say in 10 seconds or less. Uh, But that's not okay with Christians. Uh, We're called to be people who give deep thought to very important issues. So I went looking for the word consider, uh, and in the English translation, I found it 71 times. Uh, Not all in the context that I needed it to be in, consider as in you need to think about this. But often I did find it in that context that you need to think about these things. And I found it in the books that you would think that it would be found in, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, the books of wisdom, Job, Psalms, we're encouraged to consider or to think about what it is that God has put before us. And if you remember when I did Psalm 50, which is all about worship, that Psalm ended with this, now consider this, you who forget God. In other words, I've said all this stuff about how your worship is driving me insane, and so he concludes with, and you need to think about this, because you're forgetting God in your worship. So thinking and considering is vastly important for us to, as Christians as we walk through this Christian life by faith. Now one of the things that we are called to think a lot about is Israel. In fact, we're in 9 and 10 and 11, and if you're helping us go through Wednesday night with the kids, you've got to... You really need to pack your lunch and sit down in these books because this is the story of salvation in 9, 10, and 11. And it really comes to us, and I'll work this out for you, Lord willing, through this sermon at some point. It really comes to us in four phases of history that he walks through in 9, 10, and 11. But Israel is involved in every phase in some aspect or another. And so when we draw upon these things, we need to remember that we got to think about Israel because they made some mistakes that we cannot afford to make because the mistakes that they made cost them eternal life. And if you remember last week, I talked about how they had a zeal for God that Paul recognized. In fact, Paul mentions that in in Philippians 3, not just here in Romans 10. He mentions it in Philippians 3 when he says, hey, I had a zeal for God, and it was unmatched. He said, as far as anybody goes in their pursuit of God, I really don't know anybody that was running harder and faster than me, except I was running in the wrong direction. And so we've really got to consider Israel. And I'll remind you, I won't take you there. If you're taking notes, you, you do need to go back and read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, because he takes that issue up again of us really needing to think about Israel. A couple of those verses in 1 Corinthians 10 is verse 6, where he says... Now these things happen as an example for us. And then he concludes the thought with this concerning Israel. Now these things happen to them as an example and they were written down for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages has come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. So that's what Paul takes up in 1 Corinthians 10. So I'm applying a principle there over into 9, 10, and 11 that we need to sit down on this and think about this. Why did Israel rebel? Why did they turn away from God when their entire nation is defined by God? They would not be a people had God not rescued Abraham from idolatry and formed His own nation. I mean, the nation wouldn't even exist without God. So how in the world did a nation like that turn around and miss God? Now, as you walk through these passages, one of the things that you have to consider is, is this God's fault that Israel missed God? And of course, you immediately think, well, that could not possibly be. And yet, Paul lays down some principles that you've you got to ponder. First of those principles that you've got to ponder is the very character of God because he says, I'll have mercy upon whom I have mercy, Right? Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And so some people stop their thinking right there and they go, well, Israel would have made it if God had chosen Israel to make it. And I I would say to you, Paul doesn't stop there, so you don't need to stop there. That's an element to consider. But again, that's just part of this puzzle as we walk through this. So part of that, again, is the principles of God's character. But the second thing you've got to consider is prophecy. Because God always said it would go down exactly how it went down. Look with me in Romans chapter 10. Look at verse 19. Where Paul writes, But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, now let me pause right there. You see how far back he went? God prophesied through Moses. I mean, this nation is just getting started. And yet God prophesies through Moses what's going to happen. Now notice what he says in verse 19. I will make you, Israel, jealous by that which is not a nation, by a nation without understanding, that's us, Gentiles, will I anger you. Now that's not the only prophecy. God will visit that again several times, but he includes another. Look at verse 20. And Isaiah says, okay, we got Moses and Isaiah I, God, was found by those who did not seek me, the Gentiles, and I became manifest to those who did not ask for me, the Gentiles. So God had always prophesied that what went down with Israel was going to go down. And so you've got to consider this. But let me warn you something about prophecy because a lot of people get that wrong, okay? Prophecy is not God responding in the moment. That is clear because we're going back to Moses and Isaiah. But some people hold to the idea that God is simply going to respond to your actions tomorrow and work things out in a Romans 8.28 kind of way. Now that's not God at all. I don't know what that is, but God's not up there knee-jerk responding to my sin and my goofiness, okay? He is not that way. Others make the mistake that prophecy is nothing more than God looking throughout time and seeing what's going to happen and then working His redemptive plan out through what He saw. Because, you know, God's not constrained to time, they say. I know He's not, but this is their logic. God's not constrained to time. And so since He's outside of time, He's able to look inside of time at everything all at once and weave His plan in the midst of all that we're going to eventually do. That's not God either at all. Okay, Again, you have God responding, but that's not the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible didn't just see what's going to happen. He has planned what is going to happen. Everything is going according to His plan. Now, if you hold to that view of prophecy, you can sleep at night. Because what's going to happen tomorrow, it's planned. God's not surprised. He didn't have to orchestrate something because the wheels are going to fall off the bus tomorrow. No, it's planned, so go to bed and sleep well, Christian. God has things well in hand. So if you stop with prophecy, is that part of what happened to Israel? I would submit to you, that's part of it. That's part of it, but it's not where Paul stops, okay? There's another thing here, and it's kind of consistent with what I just said. If you look over in Romans 11, verse 25, you'll see another thought that's beyond prophecy. Romans 11:25, 25, Paul writes this, "...I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimations that a partial hardening has happened to Israel." until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So in other words, when we consider what happened to Israel, those are your three Ps. I don't, I don't know why I usually end on Ps, but there you go. you got the principles of God's character, you got prophecy, and you've got the sovereign plan of God. Israel has been hardened by God now. And so when you consider what happened to Israel, part of your thinking needs to ponder the sovereignty of God. And I'll tell you why. Because when things happen to you, you need to ponder about the sovereignty of God. Because when the wheels come off in your life, you'll still be able to sleep because you remember that God is sovereign. And it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay because God has things well in hand. But still, we've got to solve the puzzle about Israel. And I would suggest to you, the second thing that we've got to consider is, well, it's due to sinful nature. Israel fell off the bus because of their sin nature. Now, again, there's things here to consider, but this is not the end of the story. For instance, I would send you all the way back to Romans 5, where he tells us that because we're descendants of Adam... We're going to kick the wheels off the bus. In fact, Paul will say in Romans 5:19, through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. I mean, Israel was born this way. Even though God gave them birth, they were born sinners. And so, of course, they're going to turn away from God. And you don't have to just stop at Romans 5. You can go to Romans 3, right, where Paul says this, There is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Now, does that apply to Israel? Absolutely. I mean, first it applies to Israel before it applies to us. I mean, that is obviously true. So if you're going to ask the question, what happened to Israel... You've got to consider their sin nature. In fact, I wrote this down in my notes. What exactly were you expecting to happen to Israel? I mean, if you picked them up on day one, could you not have written the last chapter since you're a sinner yourself? Could you not have said, well, that's a foregone conclusion. Apart from the grace of God, they're going to crash and burn. And I would say you're right about that, but that's still not where Paul stops with explaining what happened to Israel. And again, I'll take you back to what I first said. You need to think about this. Paul said they're an example for us, so I need you to think about this. So the last thing that I think we could look more closely at is not that God is sovereign or not that Israel sinners but I think we can take it all the way down to Israel's response to Christ. Because Paul takes it down that far. In fact, Paul will actually ask the question, flip back with me to Romans 9 and look at verse 30, because Paul starts wrestling with this question. What shall we say then? That's exactly what we're doing right now, y'all. What are you going to say about this? Notice what he says. That Gentiles, that's us, who did not pursue righteousness, weren't even thinking about it actually, attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. That's the genuine righteousness. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at the law. They didn't make it. Why? Here's where Paul settles it down. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. And so they stumbled over the stumbling stone, I would add, who is Christ himself, because that's what he goes on in the very next verse. So if you want to understand why did the gavel fall from God the judge himself, you've got to whittle it all the way down to Israel's response to Christ. And the reason you need to think about that and you need to do that because I know where you guys are in all of your theology. We believe in the sovereignty of God, but you need to understand when the gavel falls and you are found without Christ, it's not going to fall on the sovereignty of God. It's not going to fall because God will look at you and go, Well, I had mercy on whom I had mercy. Sorry, exit stage left. Nor will the gavel fall upon you because you're a descendant of Adam. You will not stand before God in the great day of judgment and he look at you and go, Well, I guess you're one of Adam's kids. Which means you were born with a sinful nature. So sorry about that. Exit stage left. No, if the gavel falls on you, it will fall upon you for one reason and one reason alone. What you chose to do with Christ. That's why the gavel will fall upon you and you will exit stage left to an eternal hell. But if you've turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus, the gavel doesn't even fall. Welcome, my son, into eternal glories. I have known you before the foundation of the world, and I'm so glad that you're here with me now. Go and enjoy me forever. But all that falls literally on what you're going to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel stumbled. They stumbled over Jesus because they did not want to take God at His word. They did not want to believe upon the name that is above every name that was given them from God Himself. The God who created the heavens and the earth. The God who rescued Abraham from idolatry. The God who made a promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The God who had carried them faithfully through the desert after He had rescued them from Egypt the God who had given them bread from heaven and water from a rock, the God who rescued them from every single enemy, is the same God who sent His Son on their behalf, who gave them His name, and they are the people who turned away from that name and chose to work out their own salvation by proving themselves righteous before God. But I'm still not done because I still don't think that we've whittled it all the way down, because I can tell you why you're going to struggle with turning away from yourself and trusting in Jesus. I can can go all the way down to that, because the Apostle Paul does. Look at Romans 10, chapter 3, I'm sorry, Romans 10, verse 3, because Paul even sharpens the focus More so that we can understand why we do what we do. Notice what he says here. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not, keyword, first phrase, subject themselves to the righteousness of God. You know why you struggle with giving your life to Jesus, even though you know Him to be the way, the truth, and the life? even though you know that He is the bodily expression of the very love of God, you still struggle with giving Him your life? The reason is that you're so filled with pride that you cannot find enough humility to subject yourself to a holy God. You know, I was reminded of that passage, I was thinking about subjecting themselves, and it's Cody's word, tasso, place yourself up under. I was reminded of this verse, and, and James uses it, Peter uses it, and I believe they're quoting the Psalms, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You think about that. The God who created the heavens and the earth is opposed to you. Now that ought to strike fear in our hearts. That ought to make your knees tremble. Because if you're very self-aware at all, you know you struggle with pride. And God says, I'm opposed to you when you're filled with that way. But yet I will give grace to the humble. Now, I do realize it's part of the sinful nature for us to not humble ourselves, but rather to puff ourselves up in pride. And there's so many examples that I can walk you through, especially if you're in the healthcare business. Let's just start there. And I'm going to go a number of different places to help you with this. I know Jeremy's seen it. I see it in the pharmacy. Somebody walks in and they say, I have this problem. And I'll walk through their symptoms with them. Is it this? Yes. Is it that? No. Is it this? Yes. And so I take that information and most often I see, I say rather, you really need to go to the doctor to which you know their response. I don't want to do that. Okay, let's go further. I'll take them out and I'll go through the options for them. I'll whittle it down to the very best option for them to take over the counter. And after spending 20 minutes with them, they'll respond. I don't want to do that. They'll set it back on the shelf. I heard from grandmother's neighbor's dog that this is what I need to do. And they'll go and pay and they leave. And I just wasted literally 20 or 30 minutes of my life. And it happens more times than not. And you want to say, what's wrong with you? But you can't do that because you want them to come back in the store. You just think that as I walk back behind the shelf and wait on the next person that goes, hey, I got a question. And you go through this whole thing again. And I know Jeremy does that day after day after day. And it's mind numbing. I really would not want to be a doctor at all because you open the door and you know what you're walking into even though you've been to school half your life, they're going to do what Facebook said and they're not going to do what you... They paid to come see you. Literally, they paid for this. And you went to school for this. And they're going to walk out and not do a thing you said. And we laugh at that, but that that's who we are. Let me take you to the worst experience I think I ever had in pharmacy, and that was with a retired school teacher. Now, I can say this because my wife's a school teacher, but you talk about stubborn and lacking in humility. Now, thank God we've got some, and I'll be gracious, we've got some school teachers around here. I don't think that are this way. But I'm telling you, there's a bunch of them who are this way. I had one that walked in one time that told me exactly what I was going to do. To which I responded, ma'am, it doesn't have any refills. To which she said, I don't care. You're going to fill that. And back and back and forth we went until she basically told me to shut up and fill it. To which I responded, here's your bottle. There's the door. You can leave now. And when you think about that, there are experiences in our life, and a school teacher is one of them, where they're lord of the classroom for like 25 or 30 years everything that they say goes. And if it don't go, well, we're going to have a problem around here. And they walk out into life with that same attitude and they address other peoples that way. Again, I'm thankful they don't have a one here. But I've met them like that. Rob, are you like that? (laughs) Depends on what day of the week. But you know who the worst is? Preachers. Preachers are the worst because we, I'll I'll include myself, think we got it all figured out. We absolutely think we have it all figured out. And so if you want to say something that's contrary to what we think scripture says, well, I mean, you might as well smack the bobcat right in the mouth because he's about to jump all over you and you're not going to accomplish a thing. You understand, this is who we are, and there are some people that are much worse at it than others, but we refuse to subject ourselves to just about anything. Let me ask you something. Have you ever gotten in an argument with the person that you love the most, your spouse? That ever happened? How do you fare in that moment? Knowing that all you have to say is, I'm sorry. And it would literally put out the fire. But you're not gonna do that. You're gonna cross your arms. You're gonna drop a foot back to steady yourself and you're gonna bring it harder because you're right. And they're absolutely wrong. And it could be about the most ridiculous thing on the planet. Literally, turn here. And that can set off a fire that can burn the car up before you even get to where you're going. And nobody's willing to subject themselves or submit themselves and go, okay, I'll turn there. Really? You're willing to go through that? Yeah, you are, because that is exactly who we are. Now let's bring it into the realm of the spiritual world. God has a lot to say about us, right? For instance, God says that you're a sinner. You don't like to hear that because your first response, and it's been consistent with my response over the years when I try to explain people's sin to them, well, I'm not that bad. I'm a pretty good person. And I always tell you the problem with that thought is if you're comparing yourself to another human being, you really probably are a good person. But the comparison is not among men, the comparison is with the Holy Son of God. And you really are sinful. In fact, God goes so far in Ephesians 2 to say that you're a child of wrath. And that's not going to settle with you at all, because you'll admit you've done some things wrong, but there's no way that you're ever going to submit to the idea that you're a child of wrath and that God is going to bring His judgment down upon you. You don't feel like that. Because if you felt like that, any lost person that was rightly thinking about that wouldn't walk in here. They would crawl in here. They would crawl in here crying Beating their breasts saying, oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If they really gave that some thought and were willing to accept what God says about them. But they don't think that way. No, 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 no. They get dressed up to come in here. They brush their hair to come in here. They walk in here with a smile on their face and their hands stuck out to greet you. And they'll sit in here like they're somebody. You see, you're not even listening to what God says. And if we did listen to what God says about our sins, you, you couldn't even sit there. You'd be under there. I'd have to say, would you please come out from under the pew so you can listen to me? See, we don't believe that. There's so much in the realm of what God says in His Word that we don't accept. Look at the world today in sexual immorality. Are they listening to God? I'll take it off you a minute so you can breathe. I'll put it on the world. <sighs> it's not going to be on me for the next few minutes now. Look at the world Are they even listening to what God says in His Word about sexual things? Oh, no, 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 no. They're not listening. They're saying exactly opposite to what God says in His Word. We could go through theologies. We could go through doctrines, and you'll find that nobody's willing to submit themselves to anything. Take up the subject of hell. Is hell real? I mean, really? You're not going to listen to what God says in His Word about that? We could talk about the subject that Jesus is the only name under heaven given to men by which you must be saved. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no man may come to the Father but, but through Him. But many in the church are not even willing to listen to that. So when we look at Israel and we consider Israel and they refuse to subject themselves you need to realize that the number one danger in your life is your own pride and your lack of humility. Man, it's not there. It is absolutely not there apart from the grace of God. In fact, Paul will warn... Let me see if I can find my passages. Paul will warn the Gentiles who have professed faith in Christ, you better be careful. Notice verse 18. Notice what he says there. Do not be careful. Arrogant toward the branches, but if you're arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports this root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Quite right, verse 20, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear In other words, humility is not just your problem before coming to faith in Christ. Humility is always going to be your problem. Look at verse 25. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, to be uninformed in this mystery, so that you will not be what? Wise in your own estimation. Look at chapter 12. Look at verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Right? But think of him as as one who's having sound judgment. So it's always a struggle, but let me take it back to salvation because that's where I need us to rest this morning. The biggest hindrance that you have of turning from your sin and putting your faith in Christ is not the sovereignty of God. It's not your sinful nature. It's your own personal pride and unwillingness to submit yourself to what you you know to be true. To what I proclaim week in and week out as truth. And I'm preaching to myself right now, not just you. That's the problem. You know it, but you can find every excuse in the book not to submit to it. Second problem, look back at verse three. Wasn't just submission, but it's tied to that for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. Problem number two you think you've got it all figured out. And I really don't care, I can go through a whole list of examples but I don't think there's any need. It doesn't matter what I talk about. You think you've got it figured out. That applies to pharmacists. That applies to doctors and nurses and teachers and farmers and everybody else on the planet. You think you know, and and so do I. You know, we've experienced this with all three of our kids, some worse than others. I'll be gentle here and not tell you which ones but you know we went through school paige and i did i learned the hard way i think paige learned a few things the hard way so you go to your kids before they go off and you go now look it's going to be hard you need to do a and b and c and you'll be okay So they go off to college and they remember exactly what mom and dad said and they do A and B and C. Is that how that goes? That could not be further from the truth. They don't listen to a thing you said and they don't even think about, wouldn't even consider A, B, and C. They're going to do what they want to do every single time. And then they have the audacity to call you and tell you how horrible it is And you're thinking the whole time, man, if you'd done A, B, and C, we would not be having this conversation. But it's not just teenage kids. It's all you parents with little kids, right? You pull those kids aside and you think, I'm going to be the best parent today that has ever been. So you make eye contact and you tell them exactly what they're doing wrong. You tell them exactly your expectations of them you tell them exactly the reward for good behavior and the punishment for bad behavior, and then they just go running right out of the room and they do exactly what you just told them, right? Before they do the thing, they think, oh, I remember the punishment, I remember the reward, I'm going to do that thing that gives me the reward because I trust in the wisdom of mom and dad. Do y'all find your kids doing that? Not a time, right? I mean, when you do... You think you're in heaven for just like a brief moment. You think glory has descended upon your whole family. And then in the next five minutes, right? Do you know why they do exactly what they want to do? Because you did exactly what you wanted to do. What's so dangerous about that attitude is, you'll even do that when it comes to salvation. Now you think about this. Every denomination is willing to help. Every preacher in every denomination that will take up, and not all of them will, but every preacher in every denomination will stand this morning and tell the congregation what they need to do in order to be saved. And the whole time I'm shaking my head. There's nothing you can do. Christ Jesus has done it all. And yet, in your heart of hearts, you want me to give you something to do so you can rest on what you've done and not what he's done. it really don't matter. I can tell you to pray. I can tell you to come up front and bend at, I'm glad Cody told you, at this altar that's not an altar. I can tell you to get baptized. I can tell you to pray until you speak in tongues and then you'll be okay. You'll know. We could be Catholic and I could give you a whole list of things to do. And you would do them, right? Because you want to feel sure that you've been saved. And so give me something to do because my heart is bent toward do and I want to do what I think is the right thing to do. And if you didn't think what I was saying was true, you wouldn't even be sitting here this morning. You've been in some other denomination, right? So you're here because you want to be here. Because you agree with the things that I say, so you come here. You, you see, this thing is really a major sickness in our hearts. Not only do we refuse to hear and submit, we do what we want to do. And so just go ahead and say it. What, what, go ahead and say what I need to do, and I'll do it so I can be saved. And so the Jewish way of thinking was, we'll take this law and we'll prove ourselves good enough to be saved. And they missed the whole thing. Even though they were zealous for God, they missed the whole thing. And so I need for you to carry both of these ideas into the reality of who you are as an individual. I'm not going to say as somebody that's fallen. I don't even want to go there because we've got to go back up the ladder. I don't want to carry it to the sovereignty of God because Paul doesn't drop it there. He drops it on your response to Christ as your only hope for salvation. And I have to have you to deal with that issue. Now, Paul goes on, and I do want to go on just a little bit, as far as God's response when you don't listen to what He's telling you, because God does eventually respond Now, the first thing about God, and again, we're considering Israel and God's response to Israel's rebellion. I think the first place you need to look at is in Romans 10, verse 21. Notice what he says there. As for Israel, look at this. All the day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. You know, I tried to put a timeline on this this morning when I was thinking about this. Roughly about 2,000 years he did this. Come. Come. 2,000. And then I think about Calvary and I think about today, and it's about 2,000 years. And for 2,000 years to our peoples, he's been doing this. Come. Come. And you think about how many times you had to hear the gospel and hear a preacher go, come, come, and you just sat there. Oh, it was years for me. Absolutely years. And I think about my own obstinance and my own stubbornness and my own stiff neck. I'm like, really, Joey? Yeah, I struggled. So when we think about God's response, you got to think about the grace that's been extended to you for a couple thousand years. But if you just want to consider your own age personally, I'm running 53 these days. So I've got a long record of the grace of God. That He's been so kind and merciful to me. Right? But again, there's still coming a day where there's going to be a response. Keep your finger there and go back with me to Romans 1. And look at verse 28. Then we'll go right back to Romans 11. Romans 1 verse 28. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness. Now, God did do this to Israel, and I do realize Romans 1 is not dealing in the context with Israel, but I mention this because God always does this when you're unrepentant and unwilling to turn from yourself and your sin. God's like, well, just run with it. Because every sin carries with it automatic, ordained consequences, and if God lets you go in your sin, they're going to run its course. I just had a conversation with somebody this morning <coughs> whose marriage is about to be ruined because of sexual immorality. And I listened to it and I thought, hmm, too far gone now. Too much water under the bridge. Not going to recover from this one, man. Y- you went too long. You went too far. And there's automatic consequences ordained. You ruined what you once loved. And you can't fix it. That ought to be a frightening thought to us because it's not just a sin of sexual immorality. It's every single sin in our life. You've got to be humble and respond to the Lord Israel never would humble themselves and respond to the Lord. So the Lord was like, all right, just go. And they wound up doing some of the dumbest things. They wound up worshiping idols. They knew the God who made the heavens and the earth, who had done everything for them. And they found themselves bowing down to stones and statues and wooden idols. How ignorant. But let me carry that into the context of this world the context in which the world that we live in, we've ignored God so long as a country. Our leadership is absolutely stupid. Without measure. Ignorant. Beyond belief. We can't even define simple things anymore. And they're arrogant about it. And we ought to look at it as mind blowing ignorance. And do you know why we are where we are? Because God is like, okay, I'll let you run with that. And he has given us over and we are as about as dumb as any nation on the planet as a whole. That's one of God's responses to our lack of humility in our ability to hear and not go our own way. But there's another one that's equally as frightening. Go with me to back to Romans now, and I'll catch you up to what he did specifically to the Jews in Paul's time. Romans 11, look at verse 7. Let me start there. What then? Romans 11:7. What Israel is seeking... It is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap. And a stumbling block and retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and their and bend their backs forever. In other words, another one of God's responses to our lack of humility and inability to hear from Him is to just make us hardened in that way. You don't want to listen to me? Fine, I'll turn your ears off. You don't want to see me? Fine. I'll make you blind to being able to see me. That's one of the judgments that God brings against a people who are stubborn, who are filled with pride, who will not humble themselves, who will not stop doing what they think and listen to God and do what He says. God's like, all right, I'll turn your ears off. I'll make your eyes dark. I'll put you where you can't. And that is an absolutely frightening place to be that we don't ever want to be. And it should absolutely terrify us at this judgment that God brings upon a people who refuse Him. So again, we look back at Israel and we see all of these things and we better understand we can't be like them. We can't afford it. There's no way we can lose our lives. You're telling me that I need to subject myself to God... Yes. You're telling me that my way is wrong and His way is right? Yes. And you're telling me if I don't listen and obey the Word of God, then God might turn against me? Yes. Because that's exactly what He did to Israel. But even in the wisdom of God, this is the part that we're coming upon worship because it ends in worship. This is the part that's absolutely mind-blowing. Because look what God did with their rebellion. Look at verse 11. Romans 11, verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall did, they may it never be, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now if their transgression, Israel's sin, is riches for the world... And their failure is riches for the world or the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? In other words, Israel's rebellion has brought us glory. And you're like, how God? Watch one even bigger than that. Christ's death has brought us salvation. How God? In other words, God is able in an unbelievable way to work His plan out perfectly using our rebellion, our sin, our pride, and our wickedness to accomplish His perfect purposes and save and glorify Himself. Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom of God, right? They are absolutely unfathomable. Now, I bring you to the plan of God, and then I'll bring you to our proper response that's in the text so that you can see, again, that God is moving every bit of this. Notice 1130. Romans 11, verse 30. For just as you were once disobedient to God, you Gentiles, but now, different time, you have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. So these also now have been disobedient, the Jews, that because of the mercy shown to you Gentiles, they also may now be shown mercy, for God has shut up all in disobedience so that He may show mercy to all. In other words, Paul just walked through 3, of the four phases of God's plan, and then we're done. The first phase came when He let everybody go their own way. I believe it's Acts 14. He let all nations go their own way. And to sin we went. The second phase is when God revealed Himself to one particular people and He brought the Jews into a relationship with Him. We've run that course. It lasted about 2,000 years again. The third phase is the Jewish disobedience and the gospel going to the Gentiles. That's where we are now. God has worked out the first phase. He's worked out the second phase. We're in the third phase. And let me tell you something. The third phase and the fourth phase last one day if I can understand the scriptures. The third phase ends in a day and the fourth phase ends in a day and then we spend the rest of our days in glory. Notice what we say here in verse 25. He says, I do not want you to be or for I do not want you brethren to be uninformed of this mystery so that you'll not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until The fullness of the Gentiles will come in, and so all Israel will be saved. Now, I do realize a lot of guys do a lot of different things with that, but let me tell you what I do with that because I think that I'm consistent with Isaiah when I do this. God knows when the last Gentile is going to come to faith. And I've thought about this since I was a child for some reason. I just remember being a child thinking about this. He knows those who are his. And one day, the last of that bunch is going to repent and put their faith in Christ and third phase is over. Now, if I do my math right, we're about 2,000 years into phase three. And I can't help but think that we're about done here. That last phase, according to Isaiah and Paul in Acts 14, I think it was, that last phase is when the entire Jewish nation puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and according to Isaiah, that's a day. That happens in a day. He could be talking about a day, not literally, but just metaphorically, the days, but that's not what's in the text. So if the last Gentile repents and believes in the gospel and God goes, chapter 3, closed, last chapter, Israel puts their faith in Christ. If that's a day, book closed, and we go to be with Him in all eternity. And things will finally be right. But the reason I submit this to you, and again, it's, it's arguable, but there are passages that you can lean on for this. We're about done here. In other words, it's no time for you to be sitting in your pride. It is absolutely no time for you to say, I'm not going to subject myself to God. Boy, that's a bad time for that. It is no time for you to go, I'm going to cut my own path. I think I've got this figured out. Oh, no. No, no, I'm begging you. It's not the day for that. Our days are about done. And God has given us so much in his scripture that we can trust him. I mean, where in this book can you find one mark on any page that even questions the character of God? I have not found it yet. And I'm almost 30 years into this book. So if you hadn't got a mark in the book or one measure of your own history that you can't trust Him, why in the world are you not trusting Him? How long will you stand in your pride and not subject yourself to a holy God who's got it all planned out and written down? How long are you going to say, I'm going to do this thing my way? You got to think about this. God wants you to think. God wants you to sit on your back porch And consider these things. And then He wants you to get up and stop doing what you're doing and put your faith and trust in what He has done in His Son. And I'm not going to give you something to do because you'll know when you've done that. You can fool me, but I don't know that you can fool your hearts if you'll sit there and consider and listen. Do you trust Him? That's the question. Let's pray.